Vermont is a place of natural, serene beauty. From beautiful lakes to amazing expanses of mountains and forests, you can find it all in Vermont. Welcome back to the swamp, my friends, and welcome if you're new. Today we're going to be sharing some creepy and allegedly true Vermont horror stories sent in by viewers just like you. Now, as always, if you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, whether it's a story from your home state or something different, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I would love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. Now, without further ado, let us jump right into these creepy and allegedly true Vermont horror stories that'll keep you up tonight. Hey Swamp Dweller, I've been listening to your stories for some time, and it made me start thinking about some of the crazy things that I've seen and I've lived through. I have several unusual stories, but the one I'm going to tell you about took place in 2010 when I was living, well, more like couch surfing, in Burlington, Vermont. My living situation was tricky at the time. My daughter's mother had kicked me out and moved some dude from the Midwest into our home. I'm not dwelling on that, just explaining why I was sleeping on a couch at the time. I had several roommates, one who we'll call Chuck, who had a girl named Molly always hanging around. So one night, we had some friends hanging out. Our friends Brian and Lily were hanging out. We drank tea and talked about the Blair Witch movie and how crazy people went over it. It was then that Brian said, hey, has anyone taken David to the haunted beach? Everyone got real quiet. Chuck spoke up. I don't think anyone has. Me being into the paranormal had my interest immediately piqued. You want to go? I said to no one in particular. It was late, around 2am if I remember correctly. But everyone was pumped up on caffeine, and we all thought it would be a great idea. Chuck told me I should bring something for fighting what he called the demon. We all grabbed our spiritual gear, well, those who had some, and I held my sword. Yeah, yeah, I know how it sounds, a sword, but it was one of the only things I had at the time to keep me safe from many spirits and or crazy people or maybe even predators. As crazy as my sword may sound, I think Brian had some prayer beads or something and Chuck and Molly did some prayer in front of Chuck's little Wiccan shrine. I didn't notice Lily do anything unusual. But she did check out my sword with a real look on her face. It's a look that I don't really know how to describe. After that, we all hopped in Chuck's car and headed south. We went south of Burlington for a few miles. I won't say where because of some of the events that happened. I don't want people screwing around there. The night was calm, very serene if you will. The cloudless sky and the stars twinkled very brightly. Brian and I stared out one side. We were all trying to get in the right mind frame, you know. Molly, though, she didn't seem exactly experienced in this type of thing. She seemed to like the paranormal and all things that go bump in the night, but I don't think she actually necessarily believed we would see something. She was scared because she didn't want anybody to go without her. She didn't want to be left alone, basically. 
We got within a mile of this beach when things started going haywire. Out of nowhere, a freak storm rolls in and the rain started coming down in sheets. We had tornado-like winds, branches being torn out of trees, and everything dropped all around the car. It seemed like an absolute war zone. Chuck pulled over like nothing was out of the ordinary and said, We're here. At this point, I had my sword close to me because I knew I was going to need to use it at this point if things were going to be this wild. Branches were still being flung at the vehicle. I moved away toward the beach solo. Lily and Brian moved to catch up with me. I felt like there were eyes on us. I felt watched. So I asked, anyone else feel it? Brian replied, like we're being watched? Lily nodded. Okay, just wanted to make sure it wasn't just me. We went down onto the beach, and in the middle of it was an enormous maple tree that I had seen ever since moving to Burlington. It was so large that the three of us couldn't put our arms around it. The tree was putting off a sadness. That's the only way to describe it. It was an overwhelming feeling of sorrow. I looked at it at that lake, usually a very calm body of water. And I kid you not, there were foot-high waves rolling in and crashing at the shore. Chuck said, don't go in the water. Many people have drowned there over the years. The beach, it likes to eat people, especially young people. It was weird how he smiled at the water. The beach and forest were both going nuts, absolutely haywire, but it seemed to almost have been some sort of private joke. He pointed a little further south and said, The bridge, it's the worst though. I think that's where the main demon lives. Molly didn't want to go to the bridge. She acted very frightened like she knew something was there. Lily and Chuck decided to stay on the beach with her and Brian, and I went to inspect the bridge. It was a really old covered bridge, the kind of picturesque Vermont is known for. We stood in front of the bridge for a few minutes, the rain dumping down on us like mad. We looked at each other to see who would take the first step onto the bridge. I took a deep breath, nodded, and stepped on. It was honestly like entering an entirely new world. There was barely any sound on the bridge. We could see the rain still coming down on either side of the bridge but it was like we were in a sound vacuum. The hair on my body stood up all over. I felt, I felt dry lightning across my skin and as I walked further onto the bridge. I got about halfway onto the bridge when I heard Brian laughing softly, but he got louder as he moved closer. That's when it hit me. Brian didn't come with me. I came alone. So who was this? Or better yet, what was this? I slowly turned around to see this thing that was mimicking Brian had discolored eyes. They were almost blood red looking, but I could tell that it was having trouble walking as well, almost walking with a limp, if that makes any sense, but not a limp as if it were hurt, more like a limp as if it didn't know how to stand up correctly on two legs. That's when I heard my friends yelling from the beach. The storm was getting really bad and it was to a point now that we had to get out of there or things could get even worse. Almost as if an act of God was made, the rain stopped for a few minutes and gave me the chance to run past this thing and go back to my friends. They were all waiting for me in the car, and the moment that I shut the door, suddenly, it was as if the rain started up even tenfold. We got out of there, and I'll never forget this experience.
Maybe there is a demon at that place. I don't know. That maybe that maybe that beach really is haunted. Maybe there is something more than what meets the eye. But I can tell you this. Whatever mimicked my friend that day, I was going to need more than a sword to fight it off. Every kid growing up feels that they're being watched in the middle of the night or that there are monsters under their bed. Their parents would show them that there was nothing to be afraid of, assure them that the monsters did not exist, and be the end of things. I was one of those kids. Every night before I went to sleep, I would check under my bed and look inside my closet to make sure nothing was there. After determining they were both clear, I would go to sleep. I grew out of that constant fear and dismissed the idea of monsters, but I never thought that the fear would one day catch up to me. It was a bright summer day in West Dover, Vermont. I was on a weekend getaway with two of my closest friends, Jay and Dean. We were all 16 years old at the time, getting ready to start our junior year of high school in about three weeks' time. Our families are very close and Jay's family offered a trip to the rest of us. Jay's grandfather owns a cabin at the edge of the Dover County Forest, next to Shaney Brook. They would use the house in the winter during the ski season whenever they wanted to ski on the mountain that overlooks the valley. It's absolutely beautiful. It was particularly remarkable that August morning, only about 66 degrees by midday. My friends and I, avid hikers, and we loved all the small trails. Most of them I don't think go any longer than six miles, and they only go right past the cabin. Seeing this as an opportunity to get away from our families, we packed up a tent, some sleeping bags, and some other essentials and headed out on the trail. We made our way to the trailhead on the other side of the development and turned around at about 4 p.m. We got about four miles in on the walk back and decided to set up camp since it was dark. We found a clearing on the side of the trail and got to work. I built a fire pit out of rocks that I found in the area, while Jay and Dan gathered sticks to build a fire. We got the fire going and around 7.30 started cooking the hot dogs we had brought in. We played some music, shared a few stories, and had quite a lovely time. Jay brought three beers from the fridge in the cabin so we cracked one open and sipped on them while we were eating. The fire began to dim around 8.30 or so, so we all went out to grab more sticks. While I was collecting sticks, the speaker stopped playing music since my phone's Bluetooth was out of range. For a few minutes, I got a chance to listen to the natural sounds of the wilderness around us. However, I noticed there were no sounds. No birds chirping, no crickets making noise, not even a breeze making the leaves rattle. It was silent. I felt uneasy and made my way back to camp. The whole time I was walking around, I felt as though I was being watched, and a chill ran down my spine. Once I got back to the fire with my sticks, I could see the confusion on Jay's face. He was facing the opposite way of me when I got back and seemed confused to see me when he turned around. How did you get behind me so fast? I was talking to you a second ago over there. He pointed off in the direction he had been looking before I returned, and I assured him that I was never over there. Well, what did you need help with then? 
You kept saying, help me. At this point, I was on edge. No one else was on that trail with us at this time of night, and Dan was only a couple of meters away from me when we were collecting sticks, so I knew it wasn't him messing around with Jay. At this point, Dan came back and we all decided that it was probably nothing. We did not play any more music at that point, and the sounds of the wild sparked back up like wildfire. A good hour went by and we all felt pretty tired. Dan went into the tent, and Jay and I were getting ready to put the fire out. Then, it happened again. Jay and I didn't like the vibe in the area, and we were hesitant to stay out, but we did anyway. Hey. Jay and I both turned around fast, a voice called from the tree line, and we were startled. Help me. The voice called out again. Help me. The voice was deep and distorted, and it just didn't sound right. Jay and I were on edge, and Dan just came back out of the tent. Did you hear that? He asked. We were all looking off into the tree line for about 15 more minutes, but whatever was there had gotten quiet. Jay turned on the video camera that he brought with him and began filming the tree line to see if he could spot anything. Suddenly, we heard a shriek. The sound was unlike anything I'd ever heard. It started like an elk had more of a human nature behind the voice. We all stood up. Again, we heard this shriek, only this time it was much closer. Terrified, we all jumped into the tent. I knew that whatever was out there was not an elk, because elk in this area are very uncommon, and they have a higher, more consistent pitch than the thing that was screeching. We heard the shriek again, but it didn't seem as close as the one before, no. All of us went into panic now, though, looking to each other for answers and a way to get out of this. At this point, Dan opened the tent door. He got out of the tent and began to run. Jay and I exchanged looks and followed him down the trail. We were running faster than we ever had before. We had all ran cross-country, so we knew how to pace ourselves. The only difference is that this is a different kind of adrenaline. Running through your body, it changed that mindset. We sprinted as fast as possible. The sky was clear and the moon was almost complete, sending its light through the canopy to light the trail back. The entire time we ran, we could hear rustling in the bushes behind us and the eventual groan of whatever was chasing. About a mile away from the trailhead, we were all pretty tired and began to slow down significantly. At this point, we heard something dart past us in the brush. It moved faster than anything I had ever seen before and we all stopped dead in our tracks. None of us knew what was going on, and I had never had so much fear in my body. We saw a shadow dart across the trail in front of us, and once again it went back into the brush. We began running again. It almost seemed like it was circling us as it followed us back to the cabin. It only took us 12 minutes to cover the two miles of trail to the house, and as soon as we made it to the trailhead, we took off toward the cabin. We made it to the door, ran inside and locked it behind us. We then frantically ran to every door and window in the cabin ensuring they were all closed and locked. Jay's parents, who were the only ones up, did not understand why we were back so early from our hike, but we heard a thud on the roof before they could ask us any more questions. We all got very quiet. We listened to the second thud, followed by two more, progressively moving towards the deck. The thuds turned into footsteps, and then it suddenly stopped. 
We were all anxiously watching the deck, waiting to see what would jump down, but I don't think we expected to see what we did. A loud crash came from the deck and in front of us was a man. However, he didn't look quite right. He looked as if he had not eaten in a long time, made up of only skin and bones. His eyes were pale and looked glazed over. He was almost bald, with only a few strands of hair. His hair was silver, making him look incredibly old in addition to the wrinkles in his skin. His skin was white as the snow around him, and he was completely undressed. He seemed much taller than any normal man I had previously seen before. However, I couldn't tell you exactly how tall he was because he was on all fours. I realized right then and there that whatever was on the other side of that door was not a human being. It didn't even look human. It stared right through the glass at us, its pale, lifeless eyes not blinking or moving an inch. All of us looked right back at it, absolutely terrified and dumbfounded. It screeched loudly and jumped back onto the roof and we never saw it again. All of us were too scared to go to sleep and once the sun came back out we felt a sense of security that we hadn't felt that night. Jay had recorded the majority of the encounter and after going through the tape multiple times we are still at a loss for words. We never went back for the stuff on the trail that weekend and a year later during the winter we hiked back out to find that some of it was still there however we didn't go out unarmed. I wasn't a big believer in the paranormal before then. I would go on urban explorations with the guys a lot before that, and we would see all kinds of cool things and hear things we could never explain, but I would always brush it off. But this was different. This was real. And what I saw with my own two eyes, I don't think I can ever unsee. I don't think I can ever get it out of my mind. We got lucky that day. I have had trouble going back into those woods ever since, and I have been hesitant to stay at the cabin during the ski season. Since then, Jay's grandfather has changed the locks, so I feel safer than before, but part of me always feels like someone, or something, is up there, watching me, waiting. After some research, I have found other encounters with something similar to what we have seen all over Vermont, and from what I've found, it's most accurately described as a Wendigo. The Wendigo is a legend created by the Algonquin people to deter those in the tribe from falling into the grasp of greed and to deter practices of cannibalism. But every tale has its truth. I can't be sure, but I'm pretty sure what I saw was a Wendigo. To preface this, I was about 13 years old at the time. I lived in the middle of the woods in Vermont. My house was actually surrounded by miles and miles of woods with the only place nearby being a farm down the road a bit. I lived there with my father, stepmother, and three sisters, one being older and two being younger. This happened over the summer when my father and my stepmother were at their jobs. My baby sister was left with her grandmother for the day. On days like this, when my teenage sisters and I were left alone with the house to ourselves, we would explore the woods. With our overprotective father usually not letting us do anything outside, we were very familiar with those woods and even had a fort built in it, pretty close to the house. But really, we wouldn't really travel further than that. One day, while everyone was gone, 
we had decided to explore deeper into those woods. We started walking in one direction which led us so deep into the forest that the trees completely blocked out the sun and it was hard to walk between the trees and shrubs. I think that day, we walked close to a full mile into the woods. We stopped walking when we reached a small abandoned shed. My younger sister pointed something out while we were dicking around the shed and trying to open the locked door. It smells like rotten meat here, she said. And sure enough, there was a faint smell of rotting meat. And as I moved my head closer to the shed door, it was apparent the smell was coming from inside. Once she said that out loud, we could hear something more profound in the woods, like the sound of someone breaking into a sprint. I don't know how to explain it, but the thing that was running sounded like it was on two legs, like the footsteps sounded as if it were someone who was bipedal, but it was much heavier than a human being which scared the absolute crap out of my sister and myself. We all snapped out of our frozen terror when my older sister realized it sounded like it was coming toward us and started running back to where the house was. I grabbed my younger sister's arm and started running back too and yanked her so she would be in front of me instead of being dragged behind. I wasn't and still am pretty out of shape, so I was much further behind my sisters as we kept running. I never turned back to look at what was chasing us though, and didn't know how far back it was. I remember feeling something tugging at my shirt. Either it was a person, or more realistically, it got caught on a tree, and that alone filled me with so much fear and adrenaline that I ran faster than I ever had before. Once we made it back to the house, we all locked the doors and windows and stayed inside for the rest of the day. I don't know if we either lost it or whatever it was just gave up, but as we watched the woods from the kitchen, nothing ever came out. We never told our parents about that incident because we were all pretty worried about our parents yelling at us about it, and we never ended up coming across that thing again. But more weird things happened to us while in that house. We found an axe and a shovel, both pretty rusted and covered in dirt inside our fort, and none of us had ever put them there. So, who did? A few weeks later, both disappeared, just like they had appeared, without any trace or reason. Honestly, I have no words for it. My older sister also happened to have a couple of sleepwalking episodes while in that house, all of which ended with her waking up outside near or in the woods because we didn't keep our doors locked. We never found out who or what that person was, but honestly, I hope to never find out. Early one Friday afternoon in my sophomore year of college, my girlfriend Madeline's roommate Amy had the idea to gather all her new friends for a camping excursion near her hometown in upstate Vermont. She said she knew the area and had a couple of friends who lived close to the site. She said they were excellent and would be okay with us staying there, like it was on their property or something. Nobody actually knew Amy too well, but it sounded like a fun expedition. Around 20 people agreed to go. The location was about an hour from the college campus and none of us were familiar with the area at all. Some volunteered to drive as long as passengers contributed for gas or cigarettes or hooked them up with booze. People thought of this as a reasonable opportunity to get away from the campus with friends and of course there were girls with alcohol. Of the 20 people who went, 7 were girls. 
Three cars and one soccer mom van held us all, and it was a tight squeeze. En route to our destination, Amy asked us if we were alright with her friends bringing beer, because there wasn't going to be any place that sell it near us. So booze was purchased, the Natty Ice, Pabst, Coors, whatever you could think. It took us about 30 minutes to get to our site as we got off the highway. Only Amy knew how to get there as the others followed shortly behind. We passed nothing but trees, with few houses in between, and no signs of human life anywhere. We traveled on the backcountry dirt roads with out-of-state license plates and two Vermont resident drivers. After finally reaching the campground, we noticed that there is only one way in and out. We also had no cell phone service, although that was not unusual in the Northeast. As we settled in, Amy met a car to hand deliver beer for her friends, and they took off. She walked back to the site with us, and we started setting up tents, building a campfire, and we got our drink on. It's about 5pm or so, and it slowly gets darker. Our site was about a half mile away from where we entered. A scenic pond was behind our campfire, and Amy said the other side of it was in Canada. We all started drinking and relaxing and enjoying ourselves. About an hour into partying, we noticed two random guys. They looked college age, or mid-twenties at least, walking towards our campfire. We assumed that they were Amy's friends as she gave them a beer. They continued to lurk at the site's edge but didn't talk to anyone, just stared. It made some people a little uncomfortable, and afterward, there was some talk about them. After finishing their beer, they left a few minutes and walked away from the site. Although, I felt a little on edge after those dudes seemed to stake us out, we continued to party. After another hour or so, the rumbling of big engines, gunshots, horns blaring, and howling screams stopped us cold in our tracks. Coming down the only road to the site were the lights and silhouettes of several trucks. The trucks were speeding, with loud dual mufflers, large wheels, and headlights with fog lights and more lights above their windshield, the kind made for big rigs. The trucks pull up and block the only way out. Four trucks in total. There were so, so many of them, and their lights were also bright and illuminating our party. One by one, guys get out of their seats, either from the truck's bed or inside. It looked like about 15 of them altogether. As they approached us, our party went silent and all you could hear was the cackling of fire and the music playing from our van stereo. The ringleader had a cigarette in his mouth, a beer in one hand, and a shotgun. He stood about 20 feet in front of my friend Jack, stared at him, and said, This is our home turf. Do you know what we do here in Vermont? We kill idiots like you. The shotgun he had wasn't fully erected until he loaded it, cocked it, and shot it off with one hand into the sky. As the bullets buzzed a couple of feet above Jack's head, the group turned around and ran back to their trucks. They peeled out of there, one by one slowly reversing out of there. We just sat there frozen. We had no real way to react. They were continuing to hoot and holler, shooting off more bullets in the sky, driving erratically and trashing the road with beer cans and tire marks. After they all left, people started packing and quickly getting ready to go. Amy did not know who some of them were and insisted our group stay, saying they would not return. Ordinary people leave after an episode like this, but Madeline wanted to stay, 
and it would be messed up if I didn't, I guess. Madeline was a Vermont Beauty Queen contestant, and I was trying to impress her, so I agreed to stay. The cars that left were packed. A Toyota Camry, which generally sits three in the back and two in the front, was fitting four in the back and including three people in the front. Also, two were in the passenger seat and managed to get a seatbelt on. My brother Evan was there and he begged me to get in the car, but I didn't listen, and they took off. With eight of us left, three women, five men, with one car and a van, I knew it was not a good situation. And when my brother left, leaving me there in the woods with the others, I felt uneasy. I sobered up fast and decided to not drink anymore. I wish the others did the same, but they kept on partying. They took out the hard liquor next. As the others got deeper into the sauce, I stayed wary. I was the only sober person at that point. About 45 minutes after the initial incident, the sound of trucks again rumbling through the woods began. The trucks stopped further down the road from us and shut off their lights this time. We heard the unmistakable sound of a chainsaw, and we realized they had started to cut down trees and were blocking us in. We had fewer friends on the site, but they were more intoxicated than before. We were outnumbered. After hearing the chainsaw and crash of the trees, we all knew we were in trouble. Regardless of how high our BAC may have been, white underpants became brown, and some started panicking. My girlfriend's brother, Bruce, started sucking down straight liquor without a chaser and built up some liquid courage. He walked over towards the trucks. We didn't know what he was going to do. He had a big mouth and no filter, so I assumed it would not end well. We heard some commotion from the truck's direction and a lot of cursing. My girlfriend yelled at me to help her brother. I'm 6'2 and athletic, but uh, not one to really pick fights. As I reluctantly walked towards the scene, I, I saw the tree-cutting guy and his crew. I also saw Madeline's brother getting his ass beat. Punch after punch in the face, at least two different losers in a clan watching with alcohol in their hands. Meanwhile, in the background, the chainsaw continued revving. As I slowly approached the group, I could see that there were about 15 maniacs drinking, watching an innocent guy get beat up in a one-sided show. My instincts came into play and I pushed the guys who were punching him off of him and gave a swift left hook to one of their heads. The other pushed me back and I tripped over one of the trees they knocked down. The guy I punched went down and I assumed he was unconscious because he didn't get up very quickly. At this point, everything was in slow motion and I grabbed Bruce and helped him as we ran back to our cars. He was still disoriented from the couple of blows to the head and face he took. I yelled to all of my friends to get in the car and van. Meanwhile, I knew these guys would find me and rip me to shreds in the back of my head. At this point, I picked the closest automobile that was open and driver ready. It was the van and unfortunately Madeline wasn't in it. Everyone jumped in the nearest car, rolled up the windows, locked the doors, and started the engines. I knew we weren't able to get the cars out of the location with the trees in the way of our path. Both vehicles drove toward the end of the road and stopped right in the way of our path. Two girls and three guys were in the van, and two guys and Madeline were in one of the cars. The drunken clan started throwing sticks, rocks, beer cans, pounding on the glass windows with their hands, shouting and threatening that they would hurt us. Most of the people in the van were screaming, including my male roommate. They surrounded each car, and the shaking began. The van was swaying back and forth as we heard them laughing in the background. The car owner starts revving his engine, 
but they continued to push the car on both sides. The van was on two wheels almost tipping over right at one point. After that, they fled off to their trucks, driving away screeching like wild animals continuing to shoot off their guns in the air. This allowed us to get out of the car and attempt to move the trees so we could get the heck out of there. At least two trees were down and their girth was pretty significant. It took some work, but we could move them, and we did eventually, enough to get around them at least. We were too exhausted to lift them any further. We got the front two wheels around the trees and accelerated sufficiently to hop over one of the trees in the way. The car bottomed out, but it worked. It was the same thing with the van, but it was higher. I quickly jumped into the small car with Madeline, another friend, and Bruce. The other three were in the van. We all wanted to get out of there before the crew returned quickly. Bruce was driving and wanted nobody else to drive his car and swore he was okay to drive. We went left and I noticed the van went right. We were yelling at Bruce to follow the van but he wanted to get out and was intoxicated and disoriented. He had a fast car and was picking up speed. After not even five minutes on the road we passed a side street that intersects with the road that we were on and a truck with headlights pulled up behind us. They put on their brights, including the extra fog lights and started driving erratically behind us. They sped up when we sped up with excessive honking. They try to get close to the car, but Bruce is swerving. You can hear gunshots from behind us. Either the passenger seat of that car was shooting at us, or the driver was. It was hard to tell. The driver picks up speed and comes to the left side of us, risking their lives and possibly going into oncoming traffic. Bruce gains control for a little bit, but eventually doesn't have time to see a left turn coming up, and we go off into the right side and off into the road into a small ditch. The car shuts off, and we can't start it. At this point, I'm scared for everybody's life, including my own. The truck slowly rolls behind our car. Everything is quiet, and I'm thinking the worst in my head. My friend in the back seat was a cancer survivor and was prepping and motivating herself to fight for their life. Our hearts reach maximum beats per minute, and I feel like they're gonna come out of our throats at any minute. Then, by some miracle, a random passer in an automobile at midnight, or whatever it was, sees this obnoxious truck in their lights, and then they see us in a ditch. They pull over and ask, Is everything okay? And we're yelling frantically, No, call 911. The truck behind us is trying to hurt us. The truck and all the passengers get in their vehicle and peel out. The good Samaritan waited with us until authorities arrived. He was our guardian angel. I'm sure of it. We see a local police car arrive as we flag him down. Unfortunately, he acted tough and told us to shut up and stay in the car. He cursed at us, which I thought was unprofessional, and interrogated us one by one. He was an aggressive, mean, rough, and around-the-edges guy that had no sympathy. He claimed that we were lying, and he didn't want to hear what we had to say. He made us feel very uncomfortable when we were supposed to feel safe. About ten minutes later, a state trooper and Canadian Border Patrol car pull up behind him. The local cop and state trooper instantly get into a heated argument like they were about to duke it out. They were fighting over whose jurisdiction the area was. It seemed so immature and ridiculous that they were both handling it this way. We were the victims here, and it felt as though this was not a reassuring thing to be seeing. All the authorities asked us were to take them to the campsite and show them where everything took place. Bruce tried the car again to see if it would start and it did, and we were able to push it out of the ditch. Upon approaching the side road, the cops saw the trees that were cut down and had to park in front of them to walk into the campsite. 
We looked at where we had the fire set up in our tents, and they were all missing and everything was destroyed. We looked around to see where our possessions were, and they were floating deep in the pond. At this point, the Canadian border left as it wasn't their country. State and local cops took the statements and followed us to the main highway and made sure we were safe. We all decided to head back to campus and agreed to reach out to each other if we needed anything. My buddy, the cancer survivor, was petrified, and even though he had a single dorm room to himself, he wanted to stay in my dorm room. He slept on my floor for several weeks. The next day or so, our college organized a meeting for those involved to have a session to vent or talk about the episode. Counselors, security, and retired police attended and were there for support. In the end, we think the local cop was corrupt and was somehow related to the drunk crew. Although it was a traumatic experience for us, because there were no injuries or significant property damage, the cops didn't do anything. Amy denied setting us up, but the friendship was over at that point and we never talked to her again. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true Vermont horror stories sent in by viewers just like you. As always, if you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, whether it's a state-specific story or something different, be sure to submit your story at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I'm always looking for new stories to share, and stories like yours help keep this show going on a daily basis. If you enjoyed these stories, be sure to hit that like button as it helps me out a ton. If you're listening to this episode on Spotify or Apple Podcast, please be sure to give this a 5-star rating over there and leave us a review. It really helps us grow. If you're new to the swamp, why not join us? Hit that subscribe button and turn on notifications to never miss a new episode as I upload them nearly every single day on all things natural and supernatural. If you're on the go but don't have YouTube Premium but still want to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories no matter where you are, you can download them absolutely free from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and just about everywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. Be sure to join me on Twitch. I'm streaming over there multiple times a week. You can find a link to join me there in the description. Join me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Keep in touch with the Swamp all around the web. And I'll see you soon with another creepy episode.